it's frustrating because like we know that when we're not acting and someone's not policing this it's it, it's just like t these guys are organized you know they're fluid in what they do and people are getting taken every day that's that's just a fact hello and welcome back to floodlight a podcast from us here at the anti-slavery collective that looks to raise awareness of modern slavery by sharing stories and speaking to interesting people that are looking to combat it in their own way. I'm Jules. And I'm Eugenie. And for the last nine years, we have been passionate about fighting against slavery in all its forms, wherever it is found throughout the world. While it's tempting to think that slavery is a problem in the past, there are currently more than 40 million people in slavery across the world today. That's more than any other time in history. So it's very much a modern problem. And those most likely to be affected by it are women and children. For the final episode of this series, we wanted to shed light on the current humanitarian crisis and war taking place in Ukraine. And we take a moment to think about the millions of people who have fled their homes in search of safety. Today we talk to Dean. Dean is a former member of the British Armed Forces who now works in international security, who I was lucky enough to meet when visiting the Ukraine-Poland border earlier this year. Through his humanitarian work, he has learned to spot the signs of human trafficking at the border which has become increasingly prevalent due to the large amount of displaced people as a result of the war in Ukraine. He talked to us right from the border about working with private security company Mitmark, local NGOs and international law enforcement to stop human trafficking. It's shocking to hear just how commonplace it's become and crucially, what we can all do back home to help. Well, Dean, it's my absolute pleasure to introduce you to Eugenie. And from both of us, we wanted to thank you um, and Mitmark for hosting the Anti-Slavery Collective on the Ukraine border whenever it was six weeks ago. Um, we came out to see you on a discovery mission, really, to learn about the trafficking situation on the border of Ukraine and Poland. And you taught us an extraordinary amount as to what is going on. And we would love to pick your brains today and share your story with our listeners as to you personally and also to the incredible work that you've been doing on the border because in my opinion actually in our opinion it's absolutely vital that people understand what's going on thank you so maybe we can start right from the beginning dean tell us about you and doncaster <laughs> and how you can join the military um yeah, so I'm actually from a, a small mining town, actually, just outside Doncaster called Thorne. Um, yep, industrial mining industry. Really good community, believe it or not. It's, um, it's, it's not the most affluent place in the world, but, you know, we've got a really strong community and always have done. Uh, my dad was an ex-miner, then joined the British Waterways, and there wasn't much for us to do, really, I suppose, apart from going working in, like, uh, industrial workshops or... You know, some people do contract work and I just um, remember how much respect my father had for the servicemen when, I, when we used to watch Remembrance Day and uh, we'd go down to the local cenotaph and, you know, my dad was a bit of a man's man, but I always remember when uh, when it was the minute silence, you know, he was really strict and stringent about how serious it was. And that's one thing, I suppose, that stopped me in my tracks and thinking, God, I want that kind of respect from my father, I suppose, at the time. So, um, yeah, it kind of planted the seed from a young age. And um, when I first joined up, I actually joined the artillery. So I didn't join. Uh, I ended up in the parachute regiment initially, but uh, essentially. But um, right from the beginning, I joined the artillery. And um, 
yeah, I was in the artillery for like uh, five years. I joined the artillery and I was in a in an, in an airborne regiment and part of the artillery. And then I got out for a short period of time um, when you know the security industry after Iraq kind of went really big. I'd obviously served in Iraq a couple of times, and um, I thought I'd turn my hand to that to try to help what was going on in in Iraq. Um, did that for a bit, kind of kind of missed that camaraderie, missed that uh, stable platform, what the what the military gives you. And then um, I got back in in the army, and and the, and the time I got back in, unfortunately, there was um, I don't know if you remember this, but there was doing a lot of uh, cutbacks of the military. There was a, there was a lot of cutbacks at the time where a lot of people were getting made redundant, and it was all up in the air. And I can remember trying going to, going back to my parent regiment, and um, you know there was a massive holdup, and because it's quite a small boutique unit, they was like, no, you can't go anywhere for you know six to eight months. So I then joined the uh, joined the parachute regiment because obviously I'd I'd always I'd done the the parachute regiment selection selection prior. Um, so yeah, I joined the parachute regiment from there and and uh, stayed in the in the parachute regiment until two thousand and twelve. And you've since moved to Australia with your family, where you're now based, and um, and that's where you started working as an advisor for the Australian Defence Forces. Is that right? Australian Defence Force, yeah. So <clears throat> I, I was quite successful in that role, and because I worked for a private company, they 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 said, right, we think you need to maybe go into a head office role to polish you because I was very raw. You can imagine, you know, like a bit of a, a seasoned veteran, you know, combat kind of role, and um, so they put me in head office as a national transition manager. And wow, like you talk about a shock it was like it was just the biggest shock ever not the job the job i found you know like any task you just complete your tasks and that's you done but just the culture i think really bothered me it was more like a very insular kind of uh, culture opposed to being in the military where you was a part of an organization it was very like you know you're almost like blood brothers if you want to use that term um so yeah and, and to be honest I, I struggled a bit i really did i think that's the first time i'd really struggled ever like with my role like I can remember just coming back home and saying to my wife oh you know I don't know if this is really for me like I, I felt a bit of um yeah I felt yeah I, I felt like I lost my identity a little bit and then I kind of went back into that security kind of industry what I'm you know I suppose my calling card and um I started working again a little bit unfortunately got working away because um which my wife wasn't a big fan of, but, you know, going back out to the Middle East, Abu Dhabi, Dubai, Iraq, Afghanistan, North Africa, doing all different types of security work, you know, like strategic security management roles mainly, um, which is like an advisory, you know, consultant, you know, to security companies. So that brings us to today. And tell me, what was it that sparked your desire to go and help people um, when the war started in Ukraine? I started. I got a company in um, in Australia, so and, and it was very premature as well. So um, things were going really well. And when you, the Ukraine started, I was like, obviously, we, I keep in contact with a lot of my uh, fellow serving uh, comrades. And you know, within days, within a day of this happening, we were, we seen all the refugees and all the innocent people getting killed. And you know, I, I we aren't kind of jumping all over the place. I sometimes feel like make that. Nine out of ten people join the military. I believe it's like almost similar for a nurse being a nurse. They've got they've got to have that caring 
like <clears throat> gene in your body. You've got to be a caring person to be a nurse, right? You have to, you know, it's not the best paid. So there's got to be something more than money what drives. And I think that was with the military. I think, yeah, I think there's ego gets lost in it in different units, but right down to the bare basics. I think that we all want to do something, we want to change, we want to help, we want to make change. And it's always there. And I think it comes out more as you get a bit more mature as well, a bit older. But anyway, we, long story short, we was on this WhatsApp messaging group and we was like, we've got to do something. So me and one of my friends, we started putting together like teams that we knew. So we started like, you know, reaching out to people who wasn't on the group. And then we got, we, we, we come up with like um, six names who were, who were prepared to come over to the Ukraine. And, um, and what we did, we, we, um, we all, we, this happened within space in about three days. And in three or four days, this all happened. So then I, um, I, I left for the Ukraine. Uh, we we spoke to the Ukrainian community in in Sydney, where I where I live, and um, and and they raised some funds for us to go over there. When you got on that flight, did you have a plan? Yeah, yeah, we we had a, a plan. So but it's, it it was so like it, there were so many moving parts to the plan. So we, we there was a WhatsApp uh, a Facebook group what some guy had started in the UK, and I think it was a UK aid to Ukraine if I'm right. So don't quote me. I can get you the right one if you want, but I think it was that. And there was lots of people volunteering, volunteering their services and equipment. So all we knew the narrative was, is that they needed medical equipment, emergency triage, uh, they needed training and uh, they needed all this, this trauma equipment. So we was like, but a lot of people were prepared to take it to Poland and, and no, and go no further than Poland. And that's, that's fair because, a lot of these people who were volunteering was like they didn't have no military experience, and, and and you can see why they would stop at Poland because the partners, husband, kids, etc. They they'd obviously wouldn't want that, and it's it's a, you know you go into a war zone. So we was like, well, we're used to doing this. It's something we've done for like most of our adult lives. So we was on this discussion on this uh, uh, Facebook group, and we were like, right, if you can get the equipment, we'll take it to where it needs to go. And that was the general plan. And obviously we, we had maps of the areas we'd, we'd, you know, we had to follow the media to an extent of where the attacks was going in. So we had a general, like, what was going to, what was happening there. But, you know, I'm not going to make no bones about that. We kind of went out there kind of hoping we'd pick some intel when we got over the border. And, and, and obviously because we didn't have any, uh, because the UK wasn't involved at all, uh, unofficially, or we don't know if anyone ever did at the beginning, we had no contacts over there whatsoever. So we knew that we'd have to go there a bit blind and just improvise when we got there. So I went straight to the UK from uh, from Sydney. We said, right, part of our due diligence, let's do some low-level training. Low-level training is like, it, it is really what, it's just like blowing the cobwebs off. So we did that for two days, training. And then we, we drove from, um from Hall to Rotterdam and then drove our way through to Poland. So we got here probably five days near enough to the day after the, the war had started. When we got there, we went to the Shemish border because we was waiting for some equipment, so medical equipment to arrive. So we thought we'll just do a recce on the um on the border, see what you know, just do a bit of reconnaissance, see what's actually happening there. So just for our listeners, Shemish is a border town close to the Medica crossing mm. um and it's 
where Tesco's within three days turned one of their enormous superstores into a refugee center. It's incredible. But when you first got to the to Shemesh and to that crossing, how many people were crossing each day? What are the kind of volumes of people that you were seeing? Thousands, like two, three thousand a day, maybe more. You know, it was there was queues on the Ukrainian side for like a K. There was a K worth of queue. And like I've told you a story before, and it's and this is true. Like a nine-month-old baby died of hypothermia. You know, a day a day before we got there, and um, you know we've all got kids. Bar one guy who was with us. We've all got children. And uh, I remember going over that board the first day just to do, like I said, to do just to scope it out to do some reconnaissance. And we seen the queues, and it was snowing. I think it was minus six, and we seen kids freezing. Their hands were blue, and we was like in shell shock. I was like, wow, they're not even equipped for this. What did you do? What do you do in that situation? I mean, you can't you can't give gloves to everybody. How do you deal with that? All you can do is is just do one step at a time. What we need is warm kit, warm food, warm drink. So that's exactly what we did. And we and I can remember going over that border at six thirty, so eighteen thirty at night. And we did that many runs over. I think we did twenty five crossings that night, and we didn't stop till like six o'clock next morning. And we just checking gloves, and we were getting hand warmers and. They were like a little kid, maybe four year old, and we were just like grabbing the hands with our mums and rubbing the hands together, and we were blowing on cheeks, like blowing cheeks. And you know, it's not something you generally do, but in this situation, you you had an option. You were like almost giving kids like we we bought seventeen, yeah, we we bought seventeen flasks with warm water, making noodles, making soup, giving them, hugging them, like everything we could do, like. And um, and we did that all night till we couldn't do any more. We um, w- we always helping the people get through, and it was highly emotional. And and I, and, I, and I'm the first one to admit it. I've been in conflicts from being 18 years of age, and it's probably the, the year I I suppose the, the era I joined the military was probably the busiest we've had probably post war. So I was kind of, you're used to conflict, you're used to that you know that being uncomfortable, but what you're not used to is the attrition of ch- women and children you saw like that. It was something what I'd never seen before in, in, in higher in high amount. And, that, and, it, and it really shook us, you know, you did. It was like, because you're seeing kids like that and you're trying to prioritise what you can. It, it, and, and it was an emotional night. You know? I think it taxed everyone to an extent. I can only imagine how affecting that would be to see that many people desperately fleeing their own country. I mean... And Dean, when was it that you first started to become aware of, of the human trafficking problem uh, among these huge crowds of people? So we come back to medical border and we got speaking to a, a lady there and she said, we think that um, about five or six women have been have, have gone missing. And I was like, and I'm like, pardon? I'm like, and, and then it just twigged. You know, when something is a light bulb, what goes off? Because we were so siloed into that war triage cold kids like you almost didn't even think of that and then it just the penny dropped and i was like wow this is a human traffickers paradise right now the country's in in turmoil everyone's trying to come over to the medical border and there's no governance there was no governance at all and then we was like wow this is it and then soon as we kind of switched over to like that chain of thought it, we just it, it was clear as day we, we, you could see them we've never had any experience in in that like counter human trafficking it's not something we covered in that in in our uh, 
in our military career you know it's not something we we, we touch on surveillance obviously but you know we don't we don't we haven't really covered human trafficking so you know it was like it were, it were kind of like learn on the job and there was no one there and then we'd go to the uh the plot the polish authorities and and back then there were not really any police there there was obviously the border guards who were really under the pump because they've never seen the attrition of people coming through so they were too busy on getting the right people over the border border most Ukrainians who were come uh, who were coming over the border was uh, was women and children, and oh, if any men were coming over, there was really old men or like early teenagers. And that bit in the middle, obviously, the what the first question you ask is why they're coming over the border because they've all been told to fight or asked to fight. So the other people who was there, that's where they were suspect, right? And and then and there were the ones who probably. Um, or had smarter clothes, so we would see them co- like corrugating around the the front entrance of where the refugees would come through. And and looking back now, you can see them. They, they had like nicer clothes. They had new trainers on, jeans, like a, you know, like maybe an Adidas vest. And like we started noticing these people, and then we was watching them going up to, and we found that they go up to a warm a woman and kid who had more than a woman and children or a mother and children had more than one child. That that that's what we noticed straight away. And we figured out, and this is just by like just oh, I, su- I suppose it's a bit of speculation because we, we thought that because when a woman's got only got one child, it's easier for her to look after that child. But as soon as she's got two or three and she's trying to control maybe a toddler and then the four or five year olds running around, that's easy for that toddler to be taken so easy for a child to be taken so that's what we and listen we've never been given any facts about this this is just what we've seen it's like a pattern we've it's like from a long line of patterns we've seen so uh, we've seen these people and then obviously we went up to the gap up to these people and we started approaching them what are you doing here why are you here and obviously you know we're all biggish fellas they started scarpering off and going away and then we was doing we was we were letting everyone know on the um on the aid on the aid stands like um guys does we think there's some human trafficking going on here and they as soon as we had that conversation they was like yeah there is some going on because there's people there's local ukrainian communities who've been evacuated and we're saying where's this girl she hasn't turned up she came over with us so she's gone missing and that all this was happening it was like a bit of a cluster to place so we was like right we all need to like be really vigilant we've got to look you've got it especially within the aid workers but do not approach them anyway just come and speak to one of us guys or i'll go and see one of the authorities one of the police and and listen sometimes you know you'd, you'd, you'd maybe get it wrong you know you know sometimes you go up and you're like this guy looks like he's talking to people and then an hour later he'd, 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 be, he'd be waiting for a cousin or a, a relative or something like that um so but you know and, and you do get it wrong but we had to do our due diligence obviously and find out the war yeah how how long how long were you surveilling them for before you had the confidence to make interceptions or to intervene yeah. in some way because like you said this isn't something you've had a lot of experience in you were just following your intuition yeah we we um started approaching these people almost instantaneously we did it off the bat we're like because like i said i don't care if i get it wrong i'd rather get it wrong than not approach someone and take someone. 
you know what I mean? I'd rather look silly yeah. than someone be lost forever in a black hole, you know? So, like, I, that's kind of the approach I took. I was like, right, you know, if I'm wrong and I get in trouble, so be it. I'd rather, I'd rather take that calculated risk. So we started doing it. And then, like I said, you know, sometimes we did. It was no one waiting for relative and people would vouch for them. But um, Ricky and one of my other friends, uh, Josh, uh, Josh, I can't say his surname, but they intercepted someone the second day. There, were, there was like, I think we spoke to you before about Jules when you was here with Flo and they, they, they intercepted someone the second day and, um, you know, guy were like trying to get this kid away and the family and Ricky and Josh had gone over and the guy just scarpered. And then when we got the interpretation over, there was a lady who spoke Russian and this lady was from um, Dnipro. And they're obviously Russian speaking because they're, right, they're not obviously right north of Ukraine. And then, yeah, the, we asked them the questions and she's like, no, I don't know this guy. He wanted us to come with him. And he said he was going to take us to a safe place and he was getting really forceful. And, you know, with, with a bit of luck and obviously doing our surveillance, Ricky and Josh were there at the right time. And... Um- who who is um who is actually policing the border right now in terms of trafficking and, and helping out with what you've been doing so well? Sadly, nobody. Sadly nobody. And and that and outside of what we do, over there no one's doing it. And um I think especially for Medica, the Medica which is the biggest border, uh, or the or was the busiest border, because it's been um I suppose, police quite well, as in with our guys. And there's been different charities going over. So we obviously, I, I mentioned to, um, to Jules, we, we were speaking with a couple of charities, like a US called Unbound. They was over there and they were sending people sporadically across. So they'd have like someone there for a week and then they'd leave for a, three or four weeks. Someone would come back, but there were no one there consistently. So we go there every single day or we have at least two people go there every day, and we uh, and we show presence. It's more of a presence things now, and and obviously because we've approached people, and we've done that many interceptions now, they probably know they obviously know we are. So the the medic the medica border, obviously I'm presuming the word spread, and I'd probably go as far as saying it's much safer. And and I think with the attrition as obviously, uh, what was what when if when the word when the war first started, um, it's diminished a lot more now. There's nowhere near as many people as there were. I have to say, used to your point earlier, you know, who's policing it? The answer really is no one. And in the 10 years that you and I have been doing field trips like this, it's the first time I've actually seen a trafficker with my own eyes firsthand. And they don't hide because... There's no one to hide from. There is, you know, this country is at war, so everyone's on the front line. So you, you, these traffickers will put on a high vis jacket because high vis jacket equals safety because people presume they're part of an NGO, and 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 they're just there. My fear is that okay, the medical border we have presence there, but we haven't no other border. So okay, if I'm thinking like a trafficker, which you know, bear in mind it's organised crime, and this is a this is a, like a bulletproof business for them. They've been doing it for forever. Um, what would you do? You just move to a different border, right? If you knew that there were presence on one border, you just move to somewhere else where there isn't a presence there. So that's kind of the, that, that's my fear now is that they will just move to another border and the, where Medica had the highest numbers and we, we, we still st- statistically have not no numbers how many people have been taken. We don't know, but we know it's a lot. 
but we don't know if okay we, we presume that it's quieting down a lot now because there's not as much noise and not enough people but what about the other borders how many people have gone there where there's where people are not as vigilant I spoke to someone from IGM, the International Justice Mission, just before I came out to visit you and learned something that I had no idea even existed. And this is the notion of third country nationals. And like you said before, Dean, Ukraine already had a bad trafficking problem, as do many other countries in Europe. And the amount of third country nationals that have been displaced throughout the war, that is people from Western Africa, Syria, uh, the Middle East, who have been trafficked into the Ukraine. They've been held up by structures that have fallen apart because of the war, and they're now following the crowds heading west. They don't speak the language. They don't have immigration paperwork. Their skin's of a different color, and they get to the border, and they have absolutely no idea what's going on or where they're going. And the guy I spoke to from IJM said that this accounted for nearly a quarter of a million people who had been displaced. Oh, that's that's crazy. That is. It just shows, you know, the severity of this problem. And a lot of people, Jules, have like uh, we've spoke to a lot of charities, especially in the US. There's been a couple of big ones in the US, and they're saying they talk about setting up, um, you know, an office in in Eastern Europe, in Chemish or Holland or Romania. But the fact is, and it's not happening. And, and, and obviously you can tell that I know there's a lot of red tape. I know there's a lot of administration obligations, but like it's frustrating because like we know that when we're not acting and someone's not policing this, it's it, it's just like t- these guys are organised. You know, they're fluid in what they do and people are getting taken every day. That's that's just a fact. That's just a fact. And, you know, like, you know, I look at it, I've, obviously, you know, I've got daughters. I could one of my daughters, you know. And Dean, tell us a bit about what um, you saw when you went into Lviv and at the train stations and how that kind of informed your understanding of how these trafficking rings and organised crime gangs work. Well, I think that Lviv was like, that, that was the easiest possible way to, for any like human trafficking to take place. That's where it begins there because... There was no one policing anything in Lviv train station, and, and 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 not rightly so. But you can see, pardon me, the argument is that they were just in. It was just tragic. There was at war, so all their young policemen and soldiers had gone to the north and the south, and, and well, they, to the east to fight, and then they were left with reservists who didn't really, I suppose, know what they were doing, and they were trying to help soldiers and evacuees and 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 refugees, and nobody was even looking at this. Um, you know this this human trafficking, and when we went there, we realised that there is not. I suppose at the border there was still police at the Ukrainian, at the uh, Polish border, but in Lviv there was nothing. There was absolutely nothing all doing it. And we and we seen the same guys who was on this side of the border in Lviv. So we we seen these guys. It was just cl- same places. same same places, like on the phones taking pictures blatantly, like not even not even. Um, not even discreetly, just taking pictures. Like, and and it was, like, you can imagine a country like that war, people just all over, you don't know what to trust. It, there's a lot of hope and there's a lot of prayers where people just, you know, trusting strangers because their life's just been turned upside down. And that's exactly what was going to happen. I mean, I told you about the, even if there was an American guy, and this was at Tesco's, 
he was promising two Ukrainian girls that he could get him to America, but they'd have to go through Mexico. They'd have to go through Mexico. So this American guy had like been putting these two girls up in a hotel in Shemesh here. Um, and, you know, these girls thought this doesn't sound right. So they went to, spoke to one of the um, volunteers at the Tesco's and then they approached us because they realised we were doing some counter-human trafficking. And we was like, right, give us his details. We need to, we need to get, we need to get, we need to stop this guy coming in here straight away because he was volunteering in the Tesco centre. This guy was actually volunteering in the refugee centre. How, how crazy is that? That is, it's, it's ridiculous. So the guy heard that we was onto him. We'd never seen him again. We passed all the information on to local authorities and Interpol, like I believe, did the intercept eventually. But, you know, that was, that, that was one of many, I suppose, what's happened. It's shocking and it's so, so hard to police. And that, you know, there are just so, so many people to protect. Yeah, and, and, and there is so many people. And, and, and like I, I keep banging the drum, me and me and, and my team, I suppose, uh, you know, I suppose it's kind of our job to protect people. But these volunteers are at the border. It's not their job, but they still do it. And they're so brave. Like, you know, I, I almost, with these people, like the, uh, this bravery gets thrown about a lot. And, and, and listen, when people say that to me, I'm, I'm very humbled. I, I love it. But then I think they're braver than what we are. We're useless. We're, we're almost robust in, in adversity. But these guys are not. They're just volunteers who've got regular jobs and they come out there and they do interceptions. They actually go and do them. Like, you know, they, they've done them, been known to like men in the 60s. There was an old guy who's, I think he, you you knew someone who worked on Siobhan's Trust. I think he was with Siobhan's Trust and he went up. He was an old man. You know, anything could have happened to him. But, you know, the the the, the, the they're so courageous people. Like, you know, I, I, I tip my hat off to every one of them. Me too. You especially, Dean. Um, and just to sort of sum up, what what can our Dean? What can our listeners do to help? In my mind, a lot of it's around awareness raising. It's awareness raising at the border. It's awareness raising back home. But what can what can we all do to support the work that you and others are doing down at the border? I just it, it, yeah. It's awareness, isn't it? Because we all we've all heard of human trafficking. We, we hear it, but it's like a it's like a loose whisper. We hear in the back of a room. You don't think it's going to happen until you can see it. But you know, you, you've seen it. You've seen it. Eyes on. You've been with me. You've seen you've seen traffickers. We've pointed them out to you, and it's real. And it's so real now. And and it's always happened here in Ukraine, all over the Eastern Europe. But right now in this war, because there is no governance at all, like little children and women are going missing daily and how we have to kind of promote this message to get funding and and uh, whatever it takes like you know like of course i would like to be here till the end and finish it but if they bring someone else in it whatever just as long as the job gets done that's all i care about at the moment it's like it's got something's got to be done about it and and it's not just having surveillance it needs to be a crisis management element to it as well where people were shaken up you know we, we there's, there's so many arms to this organized to this kind of operation but but we need it we need it needs to be awareness there needs to be funding we need recruitment we need the right people for the job so I, I think from i suppose what we can do or what you guys can do or this message is just it's, it's got to be a promotion it's got to be almost a carpet bomb of promotion to kind of get funding and and, and make this operation happen 
some arms and legs. Because right now, this day stands, we do it. It's been self-funded, but there's only three people in rotation. So two people are going to the border every day. And it's one border. It's one border. You know, we sometimes drive up to Kosienko border, which is an hour and 20 minutes away from Medica. And we go up there maybe once, twice a week. But, you know, it, it, there's, there's, there's loads of borders. You know, there's, there's seven border crossings. So, um, you know, we, 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 need to, we need to raise the awareness. I suppose it's just simple, but it takes a lot. Dean, thank you so much for your time today and for sharing um, all of these stories. Um, I really hope that our listeners have learned as much as I did and continue to do. Um, thank you for sharing. There's a lot more to do um, and then a lot of ways that we can all support. Um, so please stay in touch and let us know how we can continue to help. Great. Thank you. That's it for today's episode and indeed this whole series of Floodlight. Thank you so much to Dean for joining us and a huge thank you to all of our guests we've spoken to across this series. Their work is truly invaluable in the fight to rid the world of modern slavery, so please make sure to listen to their stories and follow the links in each episode description to learn more about their activism. We hope that this series has shown that anyone can be an activist and your help can go such a long way to making our world a better place. Modern slavery is a problem that affects us all, so join us in the fight to rid the world of this crisis. For more information, please head to our website and look us up on any social media channels. Just search the Anti-Slavery Collective. Make sure to tell your friends about the podcast too. Thank you for listening and we'll see you again very soon. Floodlight is a stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network.